his computer. All right, and uh, what we're going to do is Jeff is going to speak first for about half an hour on the themes of his research, and then Karen and Scott in turn are going to give comments of about 10 minutes each, and then we're going to let Jeff respond for another quarter of an hour, and then we're going to open the floor to questions, but I'll need your questions to be submitted by the chat function. We're not going to try and mute and unmute and so on because that gets really awkward and really difficult. So you're going to post your questions using the chat function and we'll get to as many of them as we can. I will ask the questions and the others will then respond. So without further ado, welcome Jeff. We are looking forward and eager to hear from you. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much, Karine. Thank you very much for organizing. This is quite an honor for me. Um, and uh, I should add, the, the book is actually out. It is out in its electronic version, which is available uh, actually for free, uh, thanks to uh, uh, a generous grant from the Mellon uh, Foundation, the pilot program. Uh, the paperback edition will be out in December. Okay, uh, I sort of assume that most of you are have some idea what the consistory was. It, it was a, uh, you know, a disciplinary institution comprised of the pastors and elders. It was created by John Calvin, and uh, it it was so important uh, to him. You know, it was a the creation of the consistory was a condition uh, that he put up for his return to Geneva after uh, his return to Geneva in 1541 after being in Strasbourg for three years. Uh, you know, we think of Calvin as being a great theologian, and he certainly, certainly was. No one's going to question that. But uh, we get to really see him as pastor through his work on the consistory. And I think it's very important to remember that he dedicated the better part of at least one day a week, typically uh, a Thursday, uh, every week for the duration of his ministry until his death in 1564, occasionally two days, uh, two days a week, you know, dedicated a day to a better part of a day to, to hear the, the problems that Genevans were having, the sins that they were guilty of. Uh, this uh, book grew out of the project that uh, Corrine referred to, the, to publish the 21 volumes of the consistory. Uh, that project dates back to 1987, and of course was initiated by my late mentor, Bob Kingdon, who passed away 10 years ago. And uh, yeah, uh, I wanna give a shout out to two different people. I'm quite happy that Tom Lambert uh, is, has joined in. Tom is co-editor uh, for the first five volumes, and we still keep in touch. He very graciously read uh, parts of this book and and uh, made some very good suggestions and I would really be remiss if I didn't give a shout out to my much better half uh, Isabella Watt uh, who has been there from the beginning uh, she's been a co-editor for all 14 volumes and in um, max volumes 15 and 16 which are will be published as one tome they're coming to you next week okay they're coming to you next week okay um, <clears throat> We expect to finish this project in about six years. That is the 21st volume, 1564, the year of his death. Uh, the registers of the consistory are a real gold mine of information. They provide insight to a wide range of issues that scholars are intensively uh, researching, debating. They provide a front row seats to the reception of the Reformation 
in Geneva, and it, they really show Calvin's attitudes toward and his treatment of the common laity. Uh, the consistory summoned people for sins and misbehavior. More often than not, it limited itself to admonitions, um, to censures. Uh, it had the power to excommunicate. It did not have the power to impose secular penalties. Anybody deemed worthy uh, or deemed deserving of a secular penalty was referred to the small council, council of 25 to the city council. And I should, I should add that uh, there is a parallel project to publish the registers of the council, les registres du conseil. And a little shout out to Christophe Chazelon. He lives in Cape Verde now, but he's been the co-editor of several volumes. Uh, I believe he's going to be uh, seeing this, seeing a recording of this rather than seeing it, uh, seeing it live. Uh, in its earliest years, the consistory was quite concerned with uh, people who were ignorant about religion, or people who continued to adhere to Catholic practices. They were concerned about, Calvin and his colleagues were concerned about, you know, truancy from church. And in the first years, the members of the consistory, comprised of the pastors and elders of Geneva, uh, they might call somebody for, say, drunkenness, and, but they would also, you know, ask this person about church attendance, attendance at church, and the ability to recite the Lord's Prayer and the Apostles' Creed. After a few years, those questions became rare, or rarer at any rate, and that suggests to me that uh, by and large, Calvin and his associates were more or less pleased with the, uh, with the religious knowledge, with the church attendance and religious knowledge of the laity. Uh, early on, there were a good number of actions taken against Catholic practices, like attending mass in a neighboring uh, community, saying prayers for the, um, for the dead, saying prayers to the Virgin Mary. And uh, <clears throat> give you a, one example really uh, struck me. It was a woman who was uh, giving birth, and when she was suffering the most intense uh, pains of childbirth, uh, she belted out a Hail Mary, and unfortunately for her, the, uh, 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 the, uh, from the um, midwife, uh, the midwife uh, obviously uh, told on her, and the consistory uh, convoked her, uh, gave her a scolding, she apologized, said she wouldn't do it uh, again. Uh, it, uh, it appears pretty clear to me that uh, women had a harder time giving up some of those Catholic practices, probably most notably uh, saying prayers to the Virgin Mary. Clearly some women like being able to uh, pray to a female uh, figure. Uh, the consistory had jurisdiction over issues pertaining to marriage and the consistory records are an important means of seeing the impact of the Protestant Reformation on marriage and the family. Uh, consistory quite often took action against, um, you know, marital discord, domestic violence. Basically though, Calvin and his colleagues just told the couple to get along, uh, to stop fighting, uh, that was it. There were two uh, very memorable cases in which uh, men beat their wives so severely that they put out one of their eyes. And in both cases, the consistory, uh, well, rebuked the, the men, 
uh, told them, uh, you know, to be gentler with their wives, but also, uh, you know, admonished uh, the two women uh, to obey their husbands and not to provoke them. Uh, neither man was referred to the city council, therefore neither man spent even a day in jail for this uh, extreme uh, abuse. Uh, there was no grounds for a separation, let alone a divorce. Cruelty most definitely was not a ground for divorce. Uh, divorce was very, very rare in Reformation Geneva, and there were essentially two grounds. Uh, adultery, the ground that all Protestant reformers recognize as a justifiable uh, reason for terminating a marriage, and desertion. Desertion, uh, they set a very high bar for getting a divorce for desertion. It uh, usually was an absence, uh, a very long absence, minimum seven years typically, during which there was no, um, no communication between the two and one could sort of assume that the absent spouse was dead. In that regard, I think it's very hard to say that the introduction of divorce uh, could, can be viewed as a, a form of liberation for women. Uh, 1555 marked a turning point in Genevan history. It marked the defeat of the Peronists, the Les Enfants de Genève, the children of Geneva. These were locals who uh, resented the growing authority of Calvin and the other pastors who were all French and the, uh, the, the strict disciplinary uh, regime that was championed by the uh, consistory. After the defeats of uh, the Peronists, you see an expansion in the activity of the consistory. The uh, number of people appearing before the consistory increased, and uh, the consistory became more aggressive in uh, attacking certain um, actions, and actually expanded the, uh, uh, the number of uh, sins or misdeeds uh, that were under its uh, purview. Um, there's some interesting theories, uh, which I assume most of you are familiar with, uh, concerning the impact of Calvinism. Uh, the Weber thesis, a great thesis over 100 years ago, great sociologist Max Weber, who argued that Calvinism nurtured the spirit of capitalism. Uh, Weber, in, in coming up with this uh, thesis, this, he looked at later Calvinists, most notably the Puritans of England, but I thought it'd be useful to see how applicable, if at all, this theory is to nascent uh, Calvinism uh, in Geneva. Uh, in his thesis, uh, Weber put a lot of emphasis, a lot of emphasis on predestination, the doctrine of predestination, and on the, on, and on the belief in calling or vocation. The idea that everyone, <clears throat> not just priests or monks, have a, a calling to a certain profession and they had to dedicate themselves to that vocation with, with religious uh, enthusiasm. Uh, if we look at the evidence from the consistory, on the one hand, the consistory definitely took aggressive actions against laziness and prodigality, you know, the dissipation of goods. And in taking those actions, the consistory was especially concerned with young men. Uh, Calvin and his colleagues believed that it was essential to direct youths down the straight and narrow path, and it was going to be much easier to effect change in people's behavior if you got them when they were young uh, rather than when they were old. 
Uh, to give you just one example, in October of 1560, the consistory expressed its alarm and sent to the small council a list of 44 young men who led a life of debauchery and hedonism. They were described as loafers, they were fainéants, who did not want to do anything then wander about aimlessly and dissipate the small <clears throat> amount of goods left to them by their parents. So the consistory did take uh, aggressive actions, I should add, particularly starting, especially after 1555, to get young men to learn a profession and get to work. While it strongly encouraged what we might refer to as the Protestant work ethic, Calvin and the consistory also convoked people for usury <clears throat> and price gouging. Now, these actions definitely show that Calvin and his associates were uneasy with certain aspects of capitalism. They certainly did not trust the invisible hand of the market as described by Adam Smith um, a couple centuries later, whereby the conjunction of self-interest competition and supply and demand would supposedly result in an effective allocation of resources and enhance the overall wealth of a society. The pursuit of profits had to be tempered by charity and social welfare. Now, in and of itself, this most definitely does not disprove uh, Weber, because he was looking again at later Calvinists, especially Puritans, but at least it shows you that uh, I think there's certain ways in which, uh, you know, he was right, certain other ways where it's clearly, his thesis clearly is not applicable. Uh, the records also shed light on another important theory, that of Calvinism and the secularization of mentality. Uh, Weber and others have said that Calvinism promoted a certain desacralization of mentality, whereby the supernatural supposedly played a reduced role in this world. I think evidence from Geneva uh, can lend some credence to this view. Uh, certainly, there was a very strong belief in God's transcendence. Inside the churches, people did not genuflect before the altar. Indeed, there were no longer any altars in any church in Geneva. They had all been removed. They'd been replaced by a pulpit from which the pastor read scripture and gave a sermon. The highlight of the Catholic Mass is the celebration of the Eucharist. This involved all of the senses. For Calvinists, the center of the service was the sermon. In fact, in Geneva, the, the records of the consistory, they didn't talk about, they didn't refer to going to church. They referred to going to les sermons, going to les sermons. Uh, the sermon, a typical sermon in, in Reformation Geneva lasted about an hour. It was based on Lectio Continua, the explication of, of scripture. It was strictly an oral experience. Uh, another example that, uh, uh, that, that sheds light on, you know, this purported desacralization of mentality uh, <clears throat> involves the consistory's attacks on certain superstitions and magic. Uh, quite often, the consistory convoked people for consulting diviners. It was forbidden to try to find uh, somebody who they believed could, could predict the future. Uh, you have uh, various superstitious cures as well. Um, therapeutic magic. Uh, there were cases involving uh, a fountain in the nearby Pays de Vaux, 
where the water, uh, people would go to get the water, and supposedly the water from that fountain uh, was known to uh, effect uh, miraculous cures. Um, the consistory regularly told people, if you were sick, you should basically, the, the message was you should go to a doctor. You shouldn't take part in these superstitious cures. Uh, but it's also true that I don't think they took these, uh, these super, they didn't take this therapeutic magic terribly seriously. This was the period of the most intense uh, witch hunting uh, that Europe ever experienced, and the consistory most definitely did not, uh, you know, treat uh, these folks who would indulge in the in this these forms of you know white magic as being devil worshiping witches. One of the most common reasons to be summoned before the consistory were quarrels, and the consistory always made great efforts to reconcile feuding parties. And this was especially the case just before the celebration of communion or Calvin, as Calvin preferred to call it, the Holy Supper. The consistory claimed the exclusive right to determine who could and who could not participate in the supper, which was celebrated four times a year, in contrast to the Eucharist, which was celebrated at every uh, mass. Uh, having the right spiritual state of mind when taking communion was for the consistory an essential reason to so strive for reconciliation of feuding parties and for the penitence of sins. While on the subject of, um, of communion, the supper, I, I'd also like to give a shout out to Christian Gross who had signed up. I'm not sure if he's actually present, but he had signed up and I certainly think very, very highly uh, of, his, um, of his wonderful uh, book, on the celebration of. Quite often the, the consistory actually brought, uh, you know, summoned to it these feuding parties and actually exerted, uh, exhorted, uh, required them basically to, uh, uh, to reconcile. And quite often they did, they actually did in the presence of the consistory. We can't know how sincere those reconciliations were. At the very least though, it was quite rare for people once reconciled before the consistory, to appear again uh, because of quarrels, with the very important exception of married couples. Some of them went over and over and over again before the consistory. What the consistory really meant, and I don't think probably most of those who were reconciled, uh, those feuding parties did not all of a sudden become good friends. I don't think that was the goal of the consistory. The consistory wanted to maintain social order. It also wanted to make sure that people did not bear resentment towards others. Calvin and his colleagues were convinced that animosity towards others was incompatible with internal piety. And when dealing with most disputes, the consistory generally assumed that there was blame to go around and that all parties should ask each other for forgiveness and should forgive each other. I should add there was one minor exception uh, to this rule. Whenever John Calvin himself was involved in a dispute, that was entirely the fault of the other person. There are 21 volumes of records I've gone through. I've never found a hint of Calvin ever apologizing for anything. 
Other than those cases, which comprise a tiny, tiny percentage of all quarrels, uh, the consistory generally prefer promoting harmony to assigning guilt in handling those disputes. Uh, the consistory was also remarkably indulgent, I think, in dealing with cases of people who, after embracing uh, the Reformed uh, faith, later renounced it in a Catholic country, usually it was in France, under threat of death. And a good example was the treatment um, of, uh, of Antoine Avaux, who was himself a former Augustinian friar, he was a native of France, and he had actually married a, a former nun. And uh, in May of 1555, he appeared before the consistory and confessed that, quote, being in Paris, he was interrogated about his faith under oath and was get greatly tempted and weak in his faith out of fear of being burned. So he disavowed and abjured his faith, recognizing his sin. He requests to be forgiven and to be <clears throat> readmitted to the supper. He also disavowed his wife there, uh, end quote. Uh, his wife also admitted to having uh, renounced uh, her faith in France. Uh, the consistory decided that this couple should refrain from um, taking communion the next, uh, the next time it was celebrated. But three months later, three months later, uh, they were going to be allowed to take communion, provided they truly were penitent of their, you know, contract for their, uh, for their sins. Now, in this era, when cases of apostasy heard before the Inquisition in Spain or, little, or Italy could result in capital punishment, those who renounced the Reformed faith to save their lives were routinely readmitted to communion in Geneva after being excluded just once, provided they were truly penitent. Evidently, Calvin, the consistory, and the magistrates of Geneva did not demand martyrdom of all those facing persecution. Uh, the actions of the consistory allow us to compare it uh, with similar contemporary disciplinary institutions, uh, most obviously uh, the Catholic uh, Inquisition. I should add that the original title that I wanted for this book was The Protestant Inquisition, question mark, uh, the consistory in Calvin's Geneva. Uh, the folks at the uh, University of Rochester, folks in marketing at the University of Rochester Press, however, did not like the question mark. And I just could not substitute the question mark for a, uh, you know, with a colon. And so I so ditched that and thus we have the new title of the book. Uh, having conducted research on both the consistory of Geneva and the Roman Inquisition, I do notice some certain parallels between them. Both institutions aggressively attacked religious beliefs and practice that uh, were deemed unacceptable, and I think enjoyed a fair degree of success in creating religious uniformity. There were, however, some very important differences between the Inquisition in Italy and the consistory of Geneva. Uh, in, <clears throat> investigations by the Inquisition occasionally resulted in executions. As noted, the consistory could only admonish and at most excommunicate. While for the most part, the consistory sought conformity in word and deed, 
The Inquisition demanded conformity in word, deed, and thought. The Inquisition tried to examine the minds and the souls of people and to regulate belief as well as behavior more than the consistory did. True, the consistory constantly exhorted Genevans to examine their own consciences, consciences in order to repent of their sins and to suppress all feelings of rancor toward others. Calvin and the other members of the consistory definitely sought the interiorization of reformed piety among the laity. Uh, I believe that the Genevan consistory was actually a much more intrusive institution than the Roman, in, uh, Roman Inquisition was and had the ability to effect greater changes in behavior among the laity. Typically about 5% of Geneva's population appeared before the consistory, either as uh, defendants, as witnesses, or occasionally as, uh, as plaintiffs. By contrast, there's only a tiny percentage of the population of Italy appeared before uh, any of the inquisitions there. Uh, the inquisition, it's true in Italy, true in Spain, did not have jurisdiction over misdeeds unless heresy, blasphemy, apostasy, or uh, you know, abuse of sacraments was alleged. The history of Geneva had the power to convoke those suspected of deviating from reform mores in any way. It regularly convoked people for fornication, domestic violence, drunkenness, dissipation of assets, quarrels, dancing, card playing, mundane songs, none of which would have been a reason to be summoned by the Inquisition. Uh, considered in all its aspects, I believe that the consistory resembled much more the Catholic confessor than the inquisitor. Scholars have aptly suggested that the confessor was analogous to a position for the soul, whose ultimate goal was to reintegrate the sinner into the Christian community. The consistory of Geneva, in effect, served the same function. The consistory's weekly meetings, however, almost surely had a greater impact on the behavior of the laity than did the annual confession of Catholics, which usually took place before Easter. Okay, in his work on the consistory, again, uh, we see Calvin as pastor, and I think we see him at his best and at his worst. Make no mistake about it, he was arrogant. Uh, Calvin believed that he had never met his intellectual equal. He was probably right in that regard, and he definitely was not too concerned about being guilty himself of the sin of pride. Uh, he ruthlessly attacked anyone who questioned his authority or that of the consistory. But we also see him at his best, you know, as pastor, earnestly trying to settle differences among parishioners. Uh, one case that really comes to mind, a case uh, of a couple uh, who had been quarreling and they'd been summoned before the consistory. Uh, one morning when uh, the consistory convened, uh, the couple who had been summoned were not there. Well, Calvin actually explained to his colleagues that they had come to his abode the night before uh, to talk things over. He had a lengthy discussion with them and he said that he reconciled them. And he told them therefore there was no need for them to, uh, you know, to appear before the consistory the next day. This certainly shows, certainly suggests that this couple viewed Calvin, if not as a, you know, a marriage counselor, at least somebody 
a pastor who could, uh, uh, with whom they could express their their concerns. And uh, you know, according to Calvin himself, uh, they they seem to have worked things out. I said that it didn't take because they were back before the consistory for other um, future conflicts uh, more than once uh, after that. When possible, Calvin and the consistory preferred relying more on persuasion than on persecution in trying to effect change in the lives of Genevans. How successful was it in attacking ignorance I think the successful was pretty success. I think the consistory was pretty successful. By the time of Calvin's death, it was rare to find a native Genevan who didn't know the basics of the Reformed faith. Uh, the records also suggest that the uh, uh, the consistory was pretty successful in rooting out Catholic practices, making sign, making the sign of the cross, saying, you know, praying to the Virgin Mary. Uh, again, those actions became much uh, rarer uh, as the years progressed. Uh, so, as far as beliefs, ignorance, yeah, I think they enjoyed some success in, uh, uh, in the area of pedagogy. As far as behavior is concerned, I think the consistory was less successful in attacking, say, fornication and drunkenness. Genevans continue to get drunk, they continue to have sex outside of marriage. Uh, but uh, it uh, did seem successful in getting Genevans to examine their consciences before taking communion. Uh, Calvinist colleagues really tried to get people to internalize reform piety. A good example is how uh, cases of blasphemy appeared before the consistory. Uh, it was a fairly common sin. Um, there are many instances in which someone who blasphemed uh, was heard in the streets, you know, and, and an onlooker reproached that person right away and said, okay, hey, that's, uh, that is totally unacceptable. You get on your knees and ask for forgiveness from God. And on many occasions, they did so. Uh, you know, the guy, he was almost always a man, uh, he, he would get on his knees, ask for God for, for, for forgiveness, and then would also be called again before the consistory. And I think this shows you that not only those who heard the blast, the blasphemy, but even the blasphemers recognized that that was a behavior that should not be, uh, be done. People genuinely tried to put aside anger and settle their differences. There was uh, one memorable case in which a, uh, two women had been feuding for quite some time. And finally, the husband of one of them arranged, tried to arrange a, a formal, you know, reconciliation. He invited the other couple to their abode, plus about three or four women to serve as witnesses. And he was trying to get them both to, you know, forgive and forget. Uh, it didn't work out because the other woman just said, well, I will accept, uh, I will accept your apology, but I'm sure as I'm not going to apologize to you, or words to that effect. And, uh, and so uh, the reason we know about it is because it appeared before the consistory, because that, that attempted reconciliation uh, failed. Uh, but uh, the, the fact that on their own initiative, uh, you know, you know this, this couple you know, tried to initiate that certainly shows that they had assimilated uh, the idea uh, that you should not bear rancor towards others. You know, thanks to its tenacious efforts to root out misbehavior and personal conflicts, I think the consistory was nurturing a certain sense of, of community.
more broadly, it's fair to say that in overseeing morality, the consistory of Geneva functioned in both a top-down and the pastors and elders definitely could be heavy-handed in trying to enforce reformed mores. And in the early 1550s, a minority of Genevans, the, the Enfants de Genève, clearly resented the growing power of Calvin and the consistory. Many people obviously thought that there was nothing wrong with, say, dancing. And the aggressive efforts to forbid giving the names of saints to babies, uh, Calvin insisted only biblical names be given to uh, babies, needlessly alienated a good number of locals. On the other hand, the sheer volume of cases that came before the consistory provides strong evidence that Genevans in general shared the ideals provo uh, promoted by Calvin and his associates. It was very int intrusive, but the consistory did not have the personnel to surveil closely the daily lives of residents. It depended upon the cooperation of the rank and file to identify people who were suspected of fornicating, gambling, praying to saints, and other activities deemed sinful. Residents of Calvin's Geneva were in effect practicing a form of neighborhood watch. Some of those who denounced others, no doubt, might have been trying to settle scores with their enemies rather than bringing them back to the straight and narrow path. A danger that was not lost on the consistory, by the way. It is evident, however, that for the most part, Calvin and his colleagues espoused a brand of morality that the large majority of Genevans embraced. Uh, in his first publication about the consistory way back in 1972, Bob Kingdon described the institution as imposing, and I quote, a kind of reign of moral terror in Geneva. But he greatly modified that view later, describing the consistory as more akin to a mandatory counseling service than a tribunal. In fulfilling its important role in trying to settle quarrels, the consistory definitely did have much in common with a counseling uh, service. Uh, many Genevans obviously assimilated the idea of uh, should not bear rancor towards others, and they actually refrained from taking communion if they really felt uh, you know uh, they were not in the right state of mind. Be that as it may, make no mistake about it, the consistory was a punitive institution. Having to appear before the consistory could be daunting, especially after 1555, Calvin and his colleagues could be very heavy-handed. <clears throat> Their handling of certain cases seemed unduly harsh, and, and you know this was a reaction more often than not, more often than not, when they felt that uh, their reputations or their authority uh, uh, were being called uh, into uh, question. Uh, weighing all the evidence, we can't, uh, I think it's, it's safe to say that during Calvin's ministry, the consistory enjoyed a remarkable degree of success in reforming the mores of, you know, for better or for worse, the mores of the Genevan laity. Moreover, this study finds uh, that there was a, uh, you know, a strong synergy between discipline and the reformed movement. Uh, Geneva was simply, I think, the best example of this symbiotic uh, relationship. Uh, the institution that Calvin created, the history of Geneva, was really the reformed disciplinary institution par excellence, and it exerted a, a strong influence uh, that went far beyond the confines of this small uh, republic. Thank you very much.
Thank you so much, Jeff. So we're all clapping, right? Yay. Okay. Now we're going to hear from uh, Karen Spearling with her remarks. Thank you. Okay. I'm just trying to um, adjust myself so I don't have weird light on my face in the late afternoon. Thank you so much, Jeff, for um, a great presentation and um, also a wonderful book that I'm, I'm um, I feel privileged to be one of the first people in this group that has read it, but I have no doubt that everyone else um, is going to go for that um, online copy or buy the paperback because you want to be able to hold it in your hands. Um, so I, I just want to start out by saying, acknowledging what, again, everyone here knows what a great debt of gratitude um, all of us who work on Geneva or social discipline um, during the Reformation more broadly owe to Jeff um, and, and to Isabella as well. Um, the, their persistence over the past two decades and continuing with this project um, and with the support of Mox and Joel. Um, there's, there's really no way to sort of tally what we owe to them. So thank you to, to all of you and especially to Jeff and Isabella um, for continuing with this and for doing the work so well and so thoroughly and so thoughtfully um, in ways that make it so useful to all of us. Um, so yes, I see Elsie clapping there. Thank you. Um, I, I also just want to take a minute to note that um, I think uh, as I was listening to Jeff talk, I was remembering watching Bob Kingdon when he would come to panels of his students and the smile that he would have on his face um, because he was so proud. Um, and I, I, I just think he would be so proud right now um, to see what this book that Jeff has brought to fruition um, and the career that has led up to that. Um, so as I was one of Bob's last students and um, Jeff was always one of those people being referred to in, um, in seminars as, you know, maybe you can be like that when you grow up someday. So, um, so I want to acknowledge um, sort of the, the, the spirit of Bob, Bob Kingdon, who is here for this discussion. Um, this book is such a gift to Reformation historians, um, because there are many of us here who have been working on different aspects of the consistory over the years, but this is the first sort of collection, that, that, um, first time that we have a single discussion of the work of the consistory over the period of Calvin's lifetime. Um, and you can go back and look through many different articles um, and even books that, that some of us here have written where we sort of can make a statement about a certain period of time and make a speculation that that carries through the whole period um, of Calvin's time in the consistory records. But now we have that all brought together. Um, so Jeff is clearly um, one, one of the few people, um, maybe the person who knows this period of the consistory records inside and out and has these details at his fingertips. And the fact that, Jeff, the fact that you're able to bring that all together so clearly and lucidly, um, I think is a major achievement. Um, it would be easy to try to get sort of lost in all the details of all the stories to tell. Um, 
but I think one of the great achievements of this volume is um, the, the clarity of thought and writing and um, the, the clear picture of the work that the consistory did from its beginning um, through into the 1560s. Um, the ways that their interests changed over time, the ways that their sort of driving concerns persisted over time, um, and the, the fact that um, all the way through, there, was, there were these sort of discussions that were going on with the, the people that were brought before the consistory that helped to shape what life would look like in Reformation Geneva. Right, so of, of all the things, of all the um, great value in the consistory records, they, they do not in the end give us a lot of detail about what happened inside of worship services. Um, and they do not give us a whole lot of detail about theological discussions, right? As, as Jeff notes a number of different places in this book, there's not a lot of theological debate that happens in um, consistory meetings. But what they, what they do tell us are these, this incredibly um, detailed and three-dimensional picture of life in Reformation Geneva, of what it looked like for such a variety of people to live a reformed life um, and how that developed over time um, and what some of the challenges of that were. Um, so I, I think what I most want to do, I, I know that there are a lot of people here who are going to have a lot of great questions. Um, and what I mainly want to do is to set out a couple of, of questions for Jeff, realizing that in these kinds of projects, we're always constrained by, um, you know, the marketers who don't like the title that we want to use, um, by the uh, publisher's insistence on using endnotes instead of footnotes or, right, all of that. Um, and, and one thing that I think you'll all see when you have a chance to look at the book is that this is not just a very clear narrative about the, the priorities and actions of the consistory, but the endnotes are just an incredible discussion of the historiography surrounding social discipline and the consistory um, over recent decades. Um, and so I, I think one of my, what I'd like to do is just Jeff put a couple of questions on the table to, to ask you to sort of reflect further on what maybe there wasn't space to talk about in the book. Um, one of the points that I love um, that you make right, right at the beginning is this, this point about how the consistory records are so useful for us to, to get a window into popular culture even a little bit, right? Despite the fact that they were, um, the records were taken by elite educated men and they right, were formed by the um, priorities of the church. Um, and so my, my question for you is, given all of the work that you have done even beyond the consistory and your work on marriage and suicide um, and possession and all the different ways that you've looked at early modern society and culture um, i wonder if you could reflect a little bit uh, on the ways that early mod the early modern context can also help us to understand 
the priorities of the consistory. Um, so if the consistory record can help us to see sort of into the shape of early modern society and culture, how can thinking more broadly about early modern society and culture also help us understand um, the, the decisions that the consistory was making and that the um, topics that it was choosing to focus on. And then one other, I mean, I have many questions, but one other question um, that I, I was especially struck in your discussion here um, and also in the book about these comparisons that you've been thinking about for many years now between the consistory and um, the Inquisition. Um, I wonder what, if you can reflect at all on whether the fact that the consistory just has this, this obvious difference that the consistory has laity on it, um, as well as clergy. What, if you think that difference makes, um, is significant in understanding the impact of the consistory versus the inquisition on the societies that they were operating in. Um, and I look forward to many further discussions with you about that, but I will pass it off to Scott. Thank you so much, Karen. And now we'll hear from Scott. Well, Jeffrey, it's a pleasure for me to be a part of this panel. I feel so honored. And uh, with Karen, I'm just so deeply impressed and appreciative for your wonderful book. So thank you. And for your yours and uh, Isabella's uh, service to the scholarly community over these last number of years, last decades, uh, as you've served us all well through your, your work of editing the Consistory Minutes. My... Um, my comments are prepared, so I'm going to read this paper, It'll be about a 10-minute presentation. It is our happy occasion this afternoon to celebrate the publication of Jeffrey Watts' excellent new book, The Consistory and Social Discipline in Calvin's Geneva. In the course of his long and productive career, Dr. Watt has taught us much about church and society in early modern Europe through his careful scholarship exploring religious discipline and reformed consistories in Neuchâtel, Geneva, and beyond. In addition, Jeffrey Watt, together with his wife Isabella Watt, have meticulously edited and guided to publication uh, multiple volumes of the registers of the Consistory of Geneva, the most recent volumes covering the years 1558 and 1559, which will appear soon. Dr. Watt's present monograph, which explores Calvin's Consistory from 1542 to 1564, reflects the rich harvest of his engagement with these important historical sources. After giving a brief account of the founding and institutional history of Calvin's consistory, Watt examines the expansive functions of this disciplinary body of pastors and elders as it enforced religious uniformity, educated and disciplined children, regulated marriage, suppressed superstition, magic, and witchcraft, promoted industrious and frugal citizens, and work to repair broken relationships and effect reconciliation. Watt's narrative is particularly sensitive to the hundreds of men and women who appeared as defendants before the consistory each year. Their personal struggles and moral predicaments, many of them tragic, are examined by Watt with great insight, sympathy, and charity. Dr. Watt's research engages with and corroborates the findings of a growing number of historians who have studied reformed consistories during this period, including the work of Robert Kingdon, Raymond Menser, Thomas Lambert, Karen Spearling, Christian Gross, 
Scott Manich and Margot Todd. Watt demonstrates that in practice, Geneva's consistory focused more on right behavior and right worship than on right belief. It functioned more as a morals court than as a theological tribunal. And in this way, it was significantly different than the Roman Inquisition, as Jeffries indicated. Conflicts within families or between neighbors constituted the single most common type of misbehavior appearing on the consistory's weekly docket. As with Kingdon and others, Watt argues that Calvin's consistory frequently functioned as a kind of mandatory counseling service that sought to pacify violent quarrels and heal broken relationships. As a general rule, the disciplinary activity of ministers and elders reinforced norms of behavior shared by most of Geneva's residents and usually avoided double standards based on class or gender. With that said, however, Watt demonstrates that the members of Geneva's consistory defended patterns of patriarchy and male dominance in family life that too often jeopardized the health and safety of women and children. Consequently, he judges as too sanguine the assertions in my book that consistorial discipline, quote, protected the weakest members of Geneva society. He writes, here I quote, there were real limits to the support that the consistory provided to the vulnerable be they battered women, abused children, or pregnant maidservants. A most impressive aspect of Jeffrey Watt's study is the way in which he employs evidence from the consistorial records to address larger historical questions and debates. His treatment of Max, Max Weber's thesis that Calvinism contributed to the emergence of modern capitalism is a good example. Calvin and his consistory supported a strong work ethic abolished Catholic holidays, allowed for the charging of interests on loans, encouraged sober lifestyles, and opposed the dissipation of people's goods. All factors that indicate an elective affinity between Calvinism and modern capitalism. But what shows that the prevailing winds of Calvin's discipline could also blow in the opposite direction, given that the consistory prohib prohibited price gouging and exorbitant rates of interest, warned against avarice and the desire for excessive wealth, and defended public charity and social welfare. Watt judiciously concludes that whatever one's assessment of Weber's thesis, Calvin's brand of social discipline was a significant factor in Geneva's impressive economic growth during the centuries that followed. Dr. Watt brings his research to bear on other pressing historical debates. He pushes back against the famous failure thesis of Gerald Strauss, who once argued that Lutheran pedagogy was, for the most part, unsuccessful in transforming the behavior and religious conscience of Protestant laity in late 16th century Germany. By contrast, Watt finds evidence in the consistory's treatment of heresy, Catholic belief, and religious ignorance that Calvin's program of discipline and catechesis was largely successful in producing in Geneva a devoted Protestant laity committed to the basic tenets of the Reformed religion. According to Watt, consistorial discipline also shaped the way that ordinary Genevans understood the sacred and supernatural. In the consistory's campaign against Catholic rituals, the cult of saints, and therapeutic magic, and in its surprisingly moderate treatment of people accused of witchcraft, Calvin and his colleagues promoted a more transcendent form of piety that restricted lay people's access to God and the supernatural, ultimately contributing to the disenchantment of the Christian religion and a more secular outlook. 
These examples show that from Watt's perspective, Calvin's brand of religious discipline was rigorous, intrusive, and largely successful in shaping Geneva society in the 16th century. Jeffrey Watt's monograph, The Consistory and Social Discipline in Calvin's Geneva is an important book that makes a substantial contribution to our understanding of reform discipline and its impact on early modern Europe. We should also add that this monograph is exceedingly well-written and readable as it weaves countless numbers of surprising, amusing, and horrifying disciplinary cases together with careful historical interpretation and compelling argumentation. In my final minutes, I would like to raise several questions that may invite further conversation. First, Jeffrey Watt demonstrates that in significant ways, Calvinist discipline served as a Protestant replacement for the Catholic sacrament of penance. Even so, his analysis calls attention primarily to the consistory's concern to reform the words and deeds of defendants, rather than to affect changes in conscience or attitude. I wonder if Dr. Watt would say more about the ways that Geneva's pastors and elders sought to encourage inner piety and heartfelt repentance in their disciplinary work. Second, as noted earlier, Dr. Watt argues that my book is overly positive in its assessment of the consistory's efforts to protect the weakest members of Geneva society, given the minister's complicity in the system of patriarchy of early modern Europe that was particularly harsh toward women and children. I think his critique is fair and that my interpretation needs to situate more carefully Calvinist discipline within the pervasive system of patriarchy characteristic of the period. With that said, however, my reading of the consistory minutes still identifies a sizable number of cases where the ministers and elders disciplined behavior they judged to be especially cruel or inhumane and endeavor to protect victims of extreme brutality, violence, or wanton neglect, whether they be men, women, or children. I would be interested in hearing how Dr. Watt would evaluate such a claim. And then third, Jeffrey Watt finds no explicit evidence that Calvin's consistory ever practiced full excommunication, social ostracism, or, ex or expulsion of the sinner from the Christian community, though he notes that the French word excommunier and its cognates occasionally find their way into the consistorial register. At the same time, as Christian Gross has shown, the Edict of 1560 stipulated that in extreme cases where defendants remained incorrigible and unwilling to submit to church discipline, they should be excommunicated, excommunier, and their names announced in the church, quote, so that everyone might abstain from their company, unquote. This protocol was thereafter incorporated into a revision of the ecclesiastical ordinances in 1561. My study of the consistory minutes during the decades following Calvin's death bears out this pattern. Each year, a handful of defendants received the sentence of excommunication. In some of these cases, certainly not all, but in some of these cases, the minutes indicate that the excommunication was announced publicly from the pulpit. And in several instances, the consistory thereafter requested the small council to banish the offender from the city, either permanently or temporarily. These disciplinary steps, excommunication, public announcement, banishment, are evident in a case of an accused fornicator named Claude Maurice from the village of Jussi, 
who repeatedly refused to admit her guilt and was subsequently excommunicated and temporarily banished from Geneva's territory in 1560. And uh, Dr. Watt beautifully recounts her story in chapter, uh, chapter seven of his book. This strikes me as a clear case of full excommunication with conciliar banishment achieving the social ostracism of the guilty party. I'm interested then how Dr. Watt would assess my suggestion that in some cases, banishment, banishment from Geneva signaled the completion of a dis disciplinary process of full excommunication. In conclusion, Jeffrey Watt's excellent study of the consistory in Calvin's Geneva deserves our prayers, our, our praise and deep gratitude. Thank you, Dr. Watt, for enriching our understanding of early modern Europe through your most stimulating scholarship. And again, thanks so much. Thank you both, Karen and Scott, for your really helpful overviews. And now we're going to give Jeff a chance to respond. If you'd like to, I think, focus primarily on the questions that were asked, because then well, we have a lot of questions lined up in the chat. Sure, that I want to get sure. to as well. Yeah, uh, yeah, probably I could use your prayers as well. Thank you very much, Scott. Um, thank you both very much for your, your comments. I, I really do appreciate it. Uh, I, I am somewhat uh, worried about the sin of pride here, so I really appreciate the comments. Uh, the compliments. Um, in regard to uh, Karen's uh, uh, questions, I think the um, the early modern context. I think you know what permeates the um, the consistory records. You know, patriarchy, for example, uh, things that really really are are, are striking is there was absolutely no concept of privacy uh, at this time. Everybody in Geneva was sort of responsible for, um, you know, narking on everybody else. You see somebody doing something uh, they shouldn't be doing, uh, that should be, uh, you know, you're, you're supposed to be uh, telling people about that. There, there were occasions when um, the consistory reproached somebody because they were, uh, they believed that the, the person was, was motivated by enmity toward the, uh, the center uh, rather than for out of genuine uh, uh, piety. But, uh, you know, I think the, um, uh, you know, the emphasis on patriarchy, the fact that religion really permeated uh, Genevan society is, is, is quite striking. The fact that there were services, uh, sermons available, you know, basically uh, like close to two dozen a week, you know, every day of the week uh, is, is quite, um, uh, quite striking. Uh, as well. Um, as far as the Inquisition and the consistory, um, the Inquisition actually did have some lay figures, and uh, so I'm not, it was not an entirely uh, ecclesiastical institution. In fact, uh, the one, uh, the microhistory that I wrote, most of the, uh, most of the investigation was actually done, was actually conducted uh, by a um, by a lay official. In fact, that was one of the criticisms of the congregation in Rome. So that might be a factor. I think the the difference in the there, there are a lot of differences in the two in, institutions. Okay, first off, what the consistory and the success that it enjoyed it helps a lot that we're dealing with a very small city state, and uh, and it was much you're much more likely to be to be able to. Uh, uh, oversee a small population uh, like that, rather than say, um, I mean, 
uh, you know, the, the Inquisition of Modena had jurisdiction over uh, several, uh, uh, a, a very sizable region, a sizable region. And I think that's an important difference. I think uh, the biggest difference I see is um, what's under their purview, uh, which I sort of, which I described there as being um, um, the Inquisition, if, if you didn't have uh, heresy, apostasy, uh, abuse of sacraments and such, then it, what you weren't you weren't going to be called before the uh, uh, the Inquisition, but uh, they are very interesting uh, institutions. Um, the um, I, I thank you very much for your comments, Karen. Thank you, Scott, very much, uh, and uh, I have the highest uh, regard for your your wonderful book, by the way. And the the, the number of times that I cited your book, Karen's book, and Christian Gross. Hi, Christian. Uh, Christian Gross's wonderful book on on communion, uh, you know, shows you the high regard they have. Uh, it, I did have somewhat, um, you know, differed somewhat uh, on you know, your positive take on the protection of the weakest members of, of society, uh, particularly the victims of domestic violence. Uh, there's no doubt that uh, the consistory did, uh, you know, you know, did take action. Some people. Some men were sent to jail for um, uh, for their domestic violence by by the uh, by the council, and and sometimes not even life threatening. Only one woman, however, during the entire period of Calvin's ministry, was allowed a uh, a separation for domestic violence, and her life clearly was uh, was in was in danger. I mean, his own father testified against him. She got a divorce only when he committed adultery. Uh, I, I will stand corrected, and there is that case of the woman from Juicy. Uh, in effect, that announcement, that was basically, that's akin to uh, uh, full excommunication. But certainly during uh, Calvin's ministry, it's, uh, the word excommunier is rarely used, and it really, uh, it's um, the overwhelming uh, majority. Uh, the emphasis is really exclusion from uh, from the supper. And I think uh, even if they wanted to ostracize somebody in doing that, short of the banishment that you uh, that you mentioned, I think would have been uh, next to impossible. But uh, now your 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 criticism comments are very well taken. So thank you very much. Thank you, Jeff, for those responses. I'd like to turn now to some of the questions that have come in over the chat. So I'm going to read the questions and then Jeff, you just keep your mic open and you can go ahead and answer. And if there's any points that come up where anyone else, you know, Karen or Scott, if you have anything you want to add at any point, you can definitely do that. So the first question I had that came in was from Philip Benedict. And his, he has two questions. The first one is primarily dealing with the relation between the consistory and the civil authorities. So I'm just going to read what he wrote. The consistory couldn't issue death sentences like the Inquisition, but it could and did refer cases to the civil authorities. Just how did the consistory and the council work together? Did you find much evidence of misbehavior first observed by civil authorities and then referred to the consistory? Did evidence that came out in consistory meetings get passed along to the council? Were they interlocking parts of a coordinated system of control or separate institutions? So I'll let you respond to that before I go any further. Okay. Uh, yes, 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 and yes. Okay. 
uh, they were um, <clears throat> there were members of the the the, consist the the elders the elders were all members of one of the councils the council of 25 council of 60 council of 200 the consistory was presided over by one of the four syndics and the four syndics were the premier um, uh, executive officers in the Republic of Geneva. So yes, they're very much uh, interconnected. Uh, the consistory regularly, regularly referred people to the council. The council sometimes referred people to the consistory. Uh, the council might say, well, uh, such and such a person, sometimes the council would, would ask uh, consistory, do you think this person has asked to be readmitted to somebody has been banished for some reason or another? Uh, comes before the council asking to be readmitted. They said, well, let's, let's confer with uh, the consistory. So it, uh, it, went, uh, it, went, it went back and forth. Uh, they were two parallel institutions with an overlapping membership. Uh, when, um, you know, during, now at times they were at cross purposes and that was quite clear in, sometimes in the early 1550s. And uh, 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 when, when certain individuals tried to be readmitted to communion by the council in trying to do an end run around the, uh, the uh, uh, you know, around the, the consistory, Calvin got furious and he and other pastors uh, sometimes you know, more than once went to the consistory, excuse me, to the council to protest vigorously, uh, you know, claiming that at one point, you know, you know Calvin said, I'd rather die than uh, allow uh, you know you know put up with this so they insist um, so two parallel complementary and to a certain extent overlapping institutions thank you for that Absolutely. and it, it kind of ties in nicely what you just said to the next part of uh, Philip Benedict's question which is Calvin never apologized did any of the other pastors were they ever reprimanded or willing to share blame for one part of a conflict so other pastors other than Calvin um, good question, Phil. Um, there, there's certain cases where pastors were themselves reproached by the consistory. Um, and, um, it's, it's not so, okay, I'm trying to remember a, an apology, an apology of a member of, of a pastor to the consistory. Um, I'm more thinking of cases of certain individuals being rebuked mm -hmm. and um, um, rather than apologizing. But uh, um, certainly other pastors were there. Calvin was not necessarily the most volatile um, pastor. There, there was another one who was uh, seemingly gratuitously would, uh, would anger uh, certain individuals. And I certainly can't think of any instance in which he apologized. And quite frankly, he probably should have, yeah, Monsieur Raymond, he probably should have apologized a thousand times over. But uh, uh, I think the short answer that is probably not. Uh, I, can't, I can't think of anything. Thank you, Phil, appreciate it. All right, the, the sort of in the same line from Jim West, you mentioned that Calvin never admitted being wrong, but did any of the magistrates or clergy tell Calvin that he was wrong to his face, or was he too powerful for even that? Um, definitely the uh, to his face, yes, the council for sure. 
the council for sure told him, uh, like when he said, I'd rather die than, uh, than, than, you know, they were saying he was really out of line. They had no business speaking to them like, uh, like that. Um, a pastor telling him uh, that to his face, I can't think of any, but oh, by golly, if he got wind of somebody, um, um, you know, there's one case where a, a pastor had, uh, had been at, one of the other pastors was having a dinner with an individual and uh, who, who was bad-mouthing Calvin. And the, this, uh, this, this other pastor said something about, well, yeah, he, he's a real hothead, uh, let's face it. Uh, and, you know, oh, Calvin, to prove that he was not a hothead, just was just hell-bent on, on kicking this guy out of the ministry. And uh, uh, so, uh, uh, and succeeded in Geneva. Uh, he uh, he uh, found employment elsewhere as, as a pastor. So, but that was not to his face. That was at, you know, probably a few too many glasses of wine. And uh, somebody present uh, revealed that conversation to um, well, to Calvin, it came before the consistory, and there were, you know, some pretty serious repercussions. There were plenty of people who had lots to complain about Calvin before 1555. After 1555, criticism is going to be much uh, more muted. Yeah, absolutely. A question from Tom Lambert. Jeff, um, thank you for your presentation. And he has two questions, but he, I'm going to pick one of them. Um, yeah. he, he's interested in superstition, and his question is as follows. What is the difference between superstition and religion? And who gets to decide which is which, both in the 16th century and when working as a scholar? Because that's a very interesting question. I think a very important one. Right. Uh, superstition is defined, uh, it's in the eyes of the beholder. And uh, one person's religion is another person's uh, superstition. Mm -hmm. uh, when we're dealing with, um, uh, you know, when we're dealing with therapeutic, uh, superstitions. Uh, this is something that actually Catholics and Calvinists had in mind. The, the most common form of, um, uh, of case appearing before the, uh, the Italian Inquisition, the, the Roman Inquisition, excuse me, in the uh, late, very late 16th, early 17th century, uh, dealt with, um, you know, super, superstitions, uh, quite often therapeutic, uh, therapeutic uh, magic. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's entirely in the eyes of the uh, beholder. And uh, I'm quite sure that the, the fountains, uh, the trips to the fountain to get the water would have, been, were, would have been tolerated by the Bishop of Geneva back in the day, uh, but uh, were unacceptable to Calvin because you know, he associated that, he, they associated that with um, the veneration of of saints, but uh, yeah, great question, and it's uh, yeah, it's um, um, yeah. I know I know what various scholars say: the difference between magic and religion. But superstition is just the question of uh, uh, yeah, uh, of one's perspective. Absolutely. Uh, a question for Sabine from Sabine Heepsch. Um, she's interested in a question which I think Scott also referred to: the comparison between the consistory and the Catholic confessor. And her question is. Was the work of the consistory also, in fact, aimed at the education of the conscience? Was the aim, in a way, to make the work of the consistory eventually superfluous? superfluous? Mm -hmm. 
The consistory was, I think, I think the consistory was, uh, it was above all concerned with behavior, mm -hmm. concerned with behavior. Uh, there was a strong desire to get people to internalize um, this behavior. But I guess in a way, yeah, I mean, in uh, uh, the same way that if, um, if, if people were angels, there'd be no need for government. <laughs> I think uh, if, uh, if everyone really uh, internalized uh, reform morality as Calvin and his colleagues envisioned it, that they probably would have expected that there would be very little activity uh, for the uh, for the consistory um, to uh, to hear, um, so I think uh, it was it was more concerned with uh, more concerned with behavior. There was an element of um, and my 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 ideas changed on this over the years. When I first looked at volume one, I said it's it's just behavior. They're they're trying to get you to learn the basics, you know, the Lord's Prayer, the Apostles' Creed. But they're not interested really in in uh, studying one's uh, one's beliefs and uh, in, in studying the, you know, investigating the minds thoughts of individuals. I, I modified that view somewhat uh, in the my work on the later years when they were uh, you know really talking about the need to um, um, uh, to uh, uh, think about one's conscience as as Christian Gross found. Uh, they argued that if um, taking communion could so supposedly be, this, uh, reference Apostle Paul, could be like poison if uh, if you were not in the right uh, frame of mind. So it was it was it was counterproductive. Uh, but that's mainly mainly when you're dealing with uh, the re the pro repentance of sins. They did want people to be truly penitent, and sometimes the consistory expressed skepticism about somebody was who was really penitent and warned them you know um you know uh, you okay we're not sure you're really penitent you say you are um if um uh, you you take it at your own risk you take it at your own risk so um, i didn't do a very good job answering that question but I, it's, I, it's tricky to get into that that question about you know what is you know, the, the inner the inner change i think that's what mm -hmm. we're all often looking for but it's hard to right. find um mm -hmm. question from ward holder um, you noted that the Genevan consistory was unable to change Genevan behavior around drunkenness and fornication. Were any ecclesiastical disciplinary bodies effective in affecting those two behaviors? Huh. Um, let's see. Bob Kingdon actually, uh, Bob Kingdon actually thought that the Genevan consistory enjoyed more success than I feel they, they had in battling and attacking fornication. Uh, I guess uh, uh, I, I'm a bit more skeptical in that regard. And uh, I can't name uh, an institution that enjoyed uh, much uh, success. I, I mean, I was aware of this way back when I was doing work on Neuchatel, I'll never forget a uh, case of uh, the uh, minister preaching from the pulpit against drunkenness and one of his parishioners looked up at him and interrupted him, are you talking to me? Uh, because he was evidently a, a notorious uh, uh, drunk. But um, one interesting thing, a, a question that uh, Christoph Chazelon actually asked me 
Um, be, he, Chris, Christoph is not able to, to be here, but has, you know, he's done a lot of work on the, uh, a lot of work on the, uh, the council. He asked, how much of a deterrent was the, uh, was going to jail? I mean, you know, he rightly pointed out that going to jail was not necessarily all that intimidating. Indeed, uh, Calvin himself um, uh, complained that, um, let's see, it was in 1546, I believe. Um, Calvin himself was complaining. Uh, he and one of the lay members of the consistory went to the council to protest uh, that, you know, in the jail, uh, there's great disorder. People are, you know, people are bringing in extra food for the people. They're supposed to be on bread and water. They're supposed to be on bread and water in the jail. But uh, they're practically, you know, they're, they're singing. They're having a grand time. And, uh, and uh, you know, he's saying, hey, this is jail. In fact, the jailer was afterwards jailed because uh, he was allowing uh, this uh, misbehavior to take place. Kate Instance, I'm thinking it was 1556. So I do think that going to, most people would have preferred not going to jail for three, three days was the default uh, penalty for pretty much everything for a first-time first offense. I think it was a, I think it was nonetheless a certain deterrent. Most people would prefer not going to jail. On the other hand, if you're talking about a young couple and they're thinking about the odds of getting uh, caught, maybe they say, well, hey, uh, it might be uh, worth, you know, a roll in the hay might be worth risking. I mean, uh, I mean, who's going to catch us? You know, uh, who knows? But that was a long, convoluted, uh, very poor answer to your good question. I don't know of an institution that enjoyed a great deal of success. One thing that's clear that is in um, um, my work on Neuchatel, if you can use illegitimate births as a barometer, then... Uh, the only illegitimate births as, as a barometer, um, premarital sex was unusual, unless you're talking about the very literal sense of premarital, because uh, I remember in the 18th century, there was a noticeable increase in premarital conceptions, large increase in the number of births that took place within, say, seven months of marriage. Mm -hmm. But the... Um, uh, the um, the illegitimacy rate was, was still quite, quite low. Okay, we're getting close to our close time, but I want to get, I think, two more questions in if I can. Uh, from Esther Chung Kim, um, asking about religious knowledge and ignorance. The consistory showed concern in the early years, and this concern resurfaces with the influx of refugees in the late 1550s. Is this a continuous concern into the 1560s? Also, in the measures against excess and luxury, how important is the factor that such behaviors could lead to poverty? Um, there was, a, yeah, whenever there'd be an influx of refugees, uh, there was, there tended to be an increase in uh, concern shown for ignorance. And there was definitely an uptick in that activity uh, in the late 1550s. Uh, um, um, <clears throat> the, um, as far as the issue of luxury, there was definitely a concern about that, um, but th they also, the one, one item that comes to mind were some breaches. There were some men's breaches that were apparently very costly, and um, um, 
I mean, there, the sumptuary laws, there were sumptuary laws that, that, uh, that forbade them, and yet many were still getting them. There probably was, there was definitely a concern about poverty, but I think um, there, were, uh, there were some people buying them who definitely could afford them. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and uh, this one gentleman, I remember, he bought these expensive breeches because he was buying land in nearby Savoy, I believe it was, and he, he argued that he, uh, he needed to look good to, for this purchase. And he was told, well, you're not allowed to wear them. Obviously, he had the means to buy them, so I don't think they really thought he was going to uh, fall into poverty. It could be that their concern was if that, became the, if that really became the mode, the style, that others who could not uh, uh, afford that type of garment uh, might be inclined to, uh, to go in over their heads. Yeah. So I'll give you a final question, which actually comes from Baptiste Verli, who says, among all the cases you worked on along your life, is there any of them which is your favorite one? which is the one you often love to talk about because you really think that it encapsulates a fundamental aspect of the history of the consistory. In short, if there is one, what's Jeff Watt's favorite consistory case? Oh, Baptiste, that's a, that's a tough question. Um, it's not the case involving the man who was uh, rebuked for naming his dog Calvin. Uh, that's not the one, though I thought that was, I got a good chuckle out of that. Um, Hmm. Oh, uh, uh, it might, um, man, <laughs> let's see. Well, probably, probably the single, the single, um, best case, uh, is <clears throat> the, the case of the woman, the, uh, who was the, uh, some of you heard me make a presentation about her at the SCSC back in uh, 2017, I believe. Um, she was a um, uh, supposedly, uh, you know, was receiving revelations from God, and uh, she uh, claimed that John Calvin was her husband. God wanted her to be uh, uh, his husband, and her, yeah, she was to be uh, her husband, and. Uh, uh, she obviously was um, not playing, I mean, she had some pretty crazy ideas, to be sure. She had some rather creative means of, uh, of um, uh, interpreting uh, scripture. But uh, I'd say that uh, particular case uh, is, is probably the most memorable one. And uh, uh, she was a, um, a widow at the time, would eventually marry... Uh, she was jailed, banished, allowed back in, and what what struck me about it was uh, on the one hand, uh, you know, she was uh, claiming to be a, a prophet, uh, and uh, she was basically treated as being crazy, and uh, I sort of view it as uh, she probably uh, benefited to a degree by the sexism of um, Calvin and his colleagues in that they didn't take her seriously. And perhaps if a male had been saying similar things about receiving revelations from God, uh, he might've gotten, he might've gotten in greater trouble than, than she was. But that was, it was a very colorful case. And uh, uh, I, I think it, it, uh, it sheds light on a number of things in, in a number of different ways. So. Terrific. And we're just about at five o'clock, which is our cutting off time. But I'd like to first take an opportunity to thank 
Jeff Watt, first of all, for his presentation and his book. So everyone can join me. You can unmute if you want and give a round of applause. This is great. We're so pleased, Jeff. <laughs> thank you. Thank and you. then thank you also to Karen and to Scott for their very helpful insights into the book and its themes. Um, I have got from Jim, Jim West actually a link to the um, online version of Jeff's book. So we'll send everyone a copy of that link. So you can get the online version if you can't wait to get the hard copy version in your in your hand. But in Just the, the paperback. There's no hard. There's no, there's no hard, hard copy. Okay, so the paperback no versus the hardback copy. Okay, but there will be a, a paperback version coming out. But if you want it before that, you're going to get the link for the online version, and that should help you as well. And in the meantime, it simply remains for me to say thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to see all of you, and we will do more of these sessions hopefully after the new year. All right. Thanks again, everyone. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you all. Bye. Bye-bye. Really Bye-bye.